Today's guest is an icon in her native Poland. She's as adept in the classics as she is in stage races and has gathered an impressive palmares over her 10-year career. A winner at the Women's Tour, a champion at Amstel Gold, a national champion in the time trial and road disciplines, and a podium finisher at the inaugural Tour de France Femme in 2022. Please welcome Kasia Niewodoma today on Bobby and Jens. Hello, Kasia Niewodoma, and welcome to Bobby and Jens. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's it's our pleasure as as always. Um, yeah, you've had a pretty busy weekend. Are you recovered from the the kickoff of the Spring Classics and and back safely in Girona now? Yeah, I'm back home. Um, actually, the opening opening weekend was really fun. Um, personally, kind of feel bummed about uh, coming home with no result, where I felt like the legs were quite okay. Uh, but I guess that's the part of the spring classics as well, right? You got to have that luck and uh, you also have to be in the right place of the peloton in order to just like tick off the boxes and be able to fight in the final. Well, I guess uh, with the coming weeks, you will get many more chances to try your legs one more time, right? Probably already starting next weekend. So I guess you have a game plan for the next weekend and the weekends to come. What would be your main objective? in the next months or so. Yeah, the beauty of spring campaign is that if something goes bad one weekend, then you always have the opportunity a couple of days later or the next weekend. So I feel like sometimes with uh, bad luck, you get this extra hunger to actually show that you're good, that you had a good winter. And at least in my case, I feel extra motivated to just like do my best and I know how I felt during the envelope and I know where were my weaknesses like mentally for example when it comes to even like positioning yourself before key moments so like being smarter by that definitely you allow yourself to actually be a bit better fighter I would say because sometimes after a long winter of just like riding on your own or with a group of people that you have fun with for the most part you kind of forget how uh, crazy this sport is in a way that if you want to be up there, you really have to just be kind of ugly in some ways when it comes to just like just being a fighter and going for it. Yeah, that's got to be hard coming off a uh, a winter when you're just training, you know, in small groups or by yourself and then ding, ding, race happens. All of a sudden you have to be you have to be selfish, right? You have to be aggressive and um take it from me i i've done a couple gravel events and i just go in there thinking oh it's going to be fun but then like yeah that first couple sectors of the gravel it's it's um scary it's interesting how the switch happens because uh one week before flying to omelop to belgium i was in france with my partner having a little training camp and as the days were passing by i could see how selfish I was becoming from like me being like oh let's go out let's see this to like stay home like stay on the couch like cook for me like can you take care of my body can you motor pace me can you take me to the airport it's like everything all of a sudden revolves around you because you want to show up to the race in the best possible shape 
And I was just like recognizing that indeed I'm changing into the person that is kind of obsessed with the performance and like with wanting to arrive to the race with a hundred percent, like everything done perfectly in that I know that I could not improve or change anything else, but also you kind of put that way on shoulders of the people that live with you or share your life with because it's it's kind of a weird balance because then I I mean like everyone want to work for this one success but sometimes like especially a couple days before the race you really turn into this as uh, I don't want to like say that every cyclist is like this but everyone who really want to perform well they just are obsessed with themselves and they are selfish and you have to accept that until you finish the race because then the all the pressure and all the like tension is gone and then you're like okay now i can relax again until like wednesday comes around and you're like oh i'm leaving for race again before we go uh, further into the future racing let's go all the way back to the start of your career uh, you're born in um, poland 94 that is about five years after the wall came down. Me, I'm from East Germany, so I remember it. I was just 18. Is that still part of your history? Did your parents tell you about it? Or you like my children, my oldest son is 27 now. He goes, I don't know anything about the wall. So do you still care a little bit about it? Or you don't know anything about it? It's funny that you brought it up because seriously, like two days ago, I was, I write for German team, Canes from racing team. And actually two days ago, I was talking with one of my physios, Lars, who lives in Leipzig about the wall. Cause like randomly, I saw this news about the, the, the wall in Berlin and I started to read about it more. And as a growing up child in Poland, I would never really paid that much attention to wall in Berlin, but as a adult or grown up now, it really caught my attention to, to think that not that long time ago, actually the Berlin was divided and the whole idea of that wall and how um, aggressive people were when it comes to like trying to go from one place from east to west, just like blew my mind. And also how people were trying to uh, escape. So, uh, when you think of, when you read those information, then like you take it as a history, but on the other hand, it's like barely 30 years ago. So that is definitely mind blowing. Well, I, I also thought about you and your family because you were locked behind the Evan Curtain as well in Poland, yeah, right? right? Did that change for your parents then as well a lot? Um, to be honest, I grew up in the mountains, in the valley where I feel like everyone lived their life in some ways. Uh, to be honest, I feel very fortunate that I had the freedom of just being a kid that would spend 99% of the day outside just running around with the friends. Like I was very active and in some ways we lived just in this bubble of happiness. I felt like my parents were quite good when it comes to managing like what they think about the world and versus to like what they really communicate with, what they used to communicate with us. So uh, definitely like I remember listening to stories. I love listening to history stories from my grandparents, especially who used to also live through the second world war and like how it was back then in my village, how like they would see the German soldiers or Russian soldiers like fighting and 
basically just like experiencing that that situation themselves. So that definitely was. I remember always I would listen to those stories whenever the lights would go out or there would be a power outage. That was the moment that the, the history lessons would start. But uh, like in generally saying, I would never feel that I was somehow touched by what was happening in the world at that time. Well, I got to go to Poland uh, multiple times for, for the, the tour of Poland, and I loved it. I mean, the country is just beautiful. So in that little valley in the mountains when you were growing up, how did you come in contact with, with cycling? Um, to be honest, I feel like I still remember the love to a bike started very early. I was super young when I saw my brother, who's three years older than me, getting his first bike. And I was, I remember being so jealous that he can just hop on the bike and travel, basically. I think maybe this, like, the hunger for traveling lived inside me forever, because then I just, like, started to be obsessed with I was basically waiting for my first communion because I knew that that's when I'm going to get my first bike. Because that was like the thing that if on your communion you get as a gift, your bike, first bike. And the funny thing is that I actually didn't get a bike for my communion. So I had to wait longer. And um, I was like just very active kid, always playing mostly with guys. So in some ways, I feel like they taught me how to be feisty or how to never back down and never give up because I always was just whether playing football or handball it was always with the guys and then one day just my dad who is also very athletic decided to ride his bike with his group of friends so basically his passion kind of like allowed me to um to like kind of learn what road cycling was and also, my dad loves like a, he's very impulsive buyer, let's say. So I just said that I would like to try cycling. And the next day he just show up, showed up at home with a little road bike, which was Merida. And the next day we did a race together. It was like a time trial uh, and I did it with the guys and I won it. So after that, uh, my first coach um, invited me for the training camp with like um kind of regional group of guys and girls. And that's how it all started. So in your childhood, you never had a hero you looked at on TV, like another cycling idol in Poland. It's, it was more or less your family, your brother and your dad that actually got you into cycling. As when it comes to cycling, yes, I definitely was looking up to Polish cross-country skier, Justyna Kowalczyk. I, as a kid, I always remember watching her on TV, just winning World Cups, and I just loved watching her athletic body and how, like, for some reason, I still remember the moments whenever she would cross the finish line, feeling so exhausted, whether she would win or not, and that was always exciting me. I was, like, curious to know what does it feel like, because it looked so beautiful to me. I've watched those cross-country ski races as well, and I'm always in awe of how they just pass out. I am, I, I that never motivated me to see what that was like, and especially in retirement, I never want to come close to anything like that ever again. But you know, so growing up with with you know playing sports with boys, let's face it, like you are what one meter sixty five tall, forty. 
nine kilos. I mean, you're you're quite small. So like climbing makes sense, and you're one of the best climbers in in the peloton. But you also do the classics. Um, what? How would you describe yourself as a rider, a climber that can also do the classics, a classics that lo loves to climb? Um, what are your what are your favorite races, actually? To be honest, I'm like fully for classics. I love classics because, wow. um, okay, you have one chance, one opportunity, but you're so engaged with the race from the start because there's so much happening. And I feel like naturally I'm really good at those short explosive efforts. So I feel like usually they're on my favor. Um, but also there is this fight that for some reason, I don't know, it's like even uh, starting Omlop after a winter of training, I felt like I was straight back in the game and it felt so good to just be focused. You know, like it's interesting how your mind gets tired towards the end of the race, but also I just like loved, like the moment you put the glasses on and I feel like I'm a different person. I'm like, you know, like, Cut, cut so you know you like start to be kind of Italian kind of like whatever you you have around you basically so it's kind of nice that you can I don't know just be who normally you're not and classics are also very just explosive and unpredictable and I'm always curious to know how other girls are how strong they are and how they work throughout the winter and there's always this mental game involved as well Cause like, yeah, that's, I feel like I could always race only classics. I feel like with the Tour de France, it changed because it's such a big race for the team, for myself as well, that uh, there's also this focus now that I want to be a better climber, like a climber that does 10 k plus mountains um, and stays in the top group. So it sounds like you're not sure yet if you want to focus on the classics this year or maybe the women's Tour de France. I mean, you were third last year, so that's really good. You did win Amstel Gold Race for women, so you were really good at that as well. You're going to split your attention between the two or you go, no, it's all for the classics or all for the Tour this year? To be honest, I think that there's enough time between the last classic for me, which is Liège, uh, that ends... Uh, like 24th of April to the beginning of tour, which is like 23rd of July, more or less. So I do believe that having those multiple weeks, I am able to kind of switch. I mean, I'm already working on an ITT, for example, which maybe it's, it's not ideal for classics, but maybe it also is because like if you're in a breakaway, solo breakaway, ideally, you need that pure power. So... As for maybe in the men's peloton is a little bit different because then you have, but still you have Pogacar and basically he can do both classics and the Tour de France. So I feel like I'm looking up to like Pogacar. I'm also looking up to Demi Vollering or Annemiek van Vleuten who are so um, talented in both, only in every single discipline basically on the road. So I do believe that if you prepare yourself and you give yourself enough time to prepare uh, also with your coach, then you can be good at both uh, classics and the stage races. But you just need to rest properly in between and not rush yourself too fast to like be doing 40 minutes efforts, for example. 
But consistency seems to be your strong point. And as we all know, in this crazy sport of cycling, anything can happen and often does, right? What do you attribute your ability to be as consistent as a rider uh, as you are in the peloton? Um, I I feel like I take great, great satisfaction from knowing that I trained hard and trained enough. I don't like to feel that I haven't done something that was planned for my, from my coach, even though I like allow myself to be flexible. I always like to know that I've done everything like 100% or even more. And I feel like being just uh, good with training and with recovery always allowed me to actually be there. And also, even if I'm not in a good shape, somehow mentally, like I know what my level more or less is. So if I see Longo Borghini going, and even though I'm not strong enough to really follow her, like I cannot let her go in my head because I'm like, oh, I need to be there. This is my rider. Like that's the rider I got to be with. So I feel like maybe because I've been riding for so many years now I just like know where my level is of course I always want to win and I want to be the best and still I hope that this Strade Bianca will be the next victory of mine which maybe will happen fingers crossed but yeah just like I don't know it's like maybe you can relate to that that you kind of know your body more and more with every passing year and you kind of know what to change or what to improve and like when to stop or when to slow down. So we talked a little bit about getting ready, preparing. You have a coach. Is it your own coach? Is it a team coach? You communicate on a daily basis, or he sends you every Monday the training sheet and you just work it or you give him a feedback. How much science and how much is just a gut feeling in your training? So my coach is Nate Wilson. I started working with him just before Tour de France last year. And he's only two years older than me. So that that just makes me feel like he's my friend. And the communication is very easy. Um, I like to always, like after training, ride or race, write a comment on the training pics. And he knows what is my feedback. I don't, I am not a person that, want to be in touch with a coach every day, every minute, like whatever goes wrong, I report it. I like to have some sort of freedom. And also I like to feel that I'm in charge of my own body and career. But also I like to just know that there is a person who, who's got my back. And with Nate, it's just very easy because, as I said, we are in the same kind of group age. So uh, the conversation is very easy and flowy and we both have the same goal. And before I feel like I was very stubborn when it comes to training, I felt like I always knew better than anyone else. And he actually teaches me quite a lot. And he also makes me realize that uh, what I was doing before wasn't the greatest. So it's nice to have somebody that actually you trust and you want to listen and I think that's the most important thing about coaching. It's just having somebody that doesn't irritate you when you or doesn't annoy you when you see that he's calling you or whatever. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned it goal setting, right? Like that's a big part of everything that we do. Um so I'm curious about how you and Nate go about setting your objectives throughout a very long season where you're you know, starting with Umloop and then Strada and then the classics and then, you know, the grand tours. What, what is your um, philosophy on goal setting? 
To be honest, when you ask me that question, what came to my mind is uh, just visualizing. That's the first thing. So um, I've done those races multiple times and I know that usually I can prepare myself very well at home for the classics. Um, there are ways of or different types of trainings that I do and I know that they make me stronger. So like Stradibianca is the fir- first target. Um, having Omlob that like gives me some race speed in the legs uh, is enough, I think, for me to like then come to Strade and know that I'm at the top shape. Uh, then of course you just like hope for luck and uh, basically good good head, which is also important. And so like basically I prepare for that race. I have all those months before March 4th. So it's kind of easy to target that. And in some ways I do believe that like before I would be just like overdoing in between the classics, doing more intensive efforts where now I just float. And I feel like if you stay healthy in the women's cycling, like if you drop say 5% from your top shape, you're still in the final, I would say. It's not that, of course, like if you're in your amazing shape, then you go on your own on Mordewin, Fleshvelon, or on Kalbergur, write everyone off. But if you're like always within like 95% and 105% of your best shape, then you're always involved in the final. At least I feel like that's in my case. So if I don't get sick or if nothing goes bad, then normally I know that I am in the final. So or maybe just I don't allow myself not to be in the final if I have a really shitty day or something goes bad. Last year after COVID, I didn't feel good at all during the classic. So that definitely kind of made me more humble. So hopefully this year everything goes well. Well, um, you said you're one of your first goals will be Strade Bianchi and a team is really important. Um, so now in women's cycling, it's teams of six. Women or men's cycling teams of eight. There's just more manpower there to control the race, to prepare your attack or to put you in the right position. Is that much of a difference in women's cycling? Is it more complicated to actually prepare um, prepare an attack or control the race with six team members? Um I, no, I don't think so, to be honest. Um, we've raced with like seven or eight girls during Giro d'Italia, and I wouldn't say that there was a bigger difference from like racing with the six girls. Um, there are always like two girls usually who are responsible for positioning or for making sure that the leader or leaders stay safe. But if you have a strong team, then anything is possible. Like. Right now we can see the power of the SD works um, with six girls there. Basically, they stay calm, which is actually impressive to see. They stay calm, but whenever the moment arrives, they, they're there with as many riders as they can. And they basically dictate the tip pace and they do whatever they want. So I think like once you have a strong riders, then everything is possible. Kasia, you mentioned top shape, you know, being 95 to 100 to 105%. What does top shape feel like? Are you conscious when you have it? Or is it more of a retrospective thing saying, oh, I, I was in top shape there? Oh, it's such a great feeling. Like top shape, 
if only I knew the secret to top shape that you can have at every single race, uh, I wouldn't share with anyone, but I would use it all the time. Um, it's so nice because you really feel, I was actually talking about with Pauline the other day. It's like you're turning this autopilot on, you know, you're just, you're riding, you know that you suffer, but you like go with it, you accept it and you don't have negative thoughts. Cause I feel like at the end of the day, it's, everyone says like, oh, the, the mental health matters. You have to be strong mentally. But if you're in shape, like I always feel that, that the brain just turns off. Your body just does whatever it has to do and you make the right choices and you just feel like the suffering, you still, you're still in pain and you suffer, but it's just more acceptable in some ways. It's like you suffer, but you take pleasure with like looking at others people suffering versus, you know, to like suffering and not being in shape. And somebody tells you like, oh, if you feel that you're suffering, look around that annoys you then because you're just not in shape. It's so weird, but, um, but yeah, it's the, the state that just everything flows easily. So from your experience, Kasia, how long can you keep that top sheet? A month, six weeks or only two weeks? Like a top top, I would say it's the, the matter of couple of days. This is like a, you know, cherry, like the icing on the cake. Being in good, in a good shape, you can like maintain it for a couple of days, but like having this like amazing day it just have i think yeah like i'm still the race i won i was in a brilliant shape i think when i got third in love and during worlds i was also in a great shape um in the tour de france which was like eight days i knew that i was good but also i know that the seventh stage was the top shape like that was the day that i could just suffer and suffer and suffer we'll be back after this short break Let's talk a little bit about the Tour de France avec Zwift in, in 2022. I mean, you finished on the podium with Annemiek van Vluten and Demi Vollering. What was your, what now, you know, next season, um, what were your memories of that event? I mean, it was fantastic for us to watch on TV. You, you, you women got to, to actually live it. But do you find yourself thinking back to that race any more than say Amstel Gold back in 2019 or any of the other races that you, you you ride well in? To be honest, what was really amazing about this race was how my team functioned. Cause uh, like Amstel, it was just a one day race. What I wish that could actually change about winning a race is that you get more time to celebrate. Cause I feel like after Amstel, it was like, okay, dinner, we had French fries to celebrate. And then the next morning you wake up and you have to be focused on flesh Vallon, you know? So it's kind of a sad moment because you want to celebrate, but you cannot because you have to be strict because there's more coming. Uh, with Tour de France was a little bit different because we stayed together as a team, the same group of riders all the time. And with every passing day, we were just building a good vibe and we had the time to kind of live it together, not just like that one person celebrates something and the others are traveling home, but all the time we get got to just like share good feelings because it really felt good. Like definitely we recall it, especially with the girls, how everything was 
in the right place, we just felt calm. And I think that's also one of the most important factors of being in shape is that you feel calm. And actually, I also heard it from Matthew Van Der Poel when he won World Cycle Cross. He said that he just felt calm. So this is like a great state that you also have when you're in shape because you just know that you got this. And tour was just amazing because we knew that there was going to be a lot of media around. And I think that my team did a great job preparing us for what was coming. Uh, but also they made sure that it wasn't too overwhelming for us because it was like a first very big race, uh, media-wise, let's say. But everything just, we, from the second stage, we were like top three in the GC. So we knew that this is what we want to have. And we were just very committed. So having a group of riders around you that would do anything just to keep the top three in the DC was like the main goal. And every morning we would wake up and like, you know, just feel it. So that was really nice that for some reason we could maintain it. Cause again, now we're like, how can we bring that atmosphere back? But somehow it naturally happens when everyone is in a good place and everyone feels ready and calm and just ready to suffer again. And how was it for you? I mean, there were millions of people watching it on TV worldwide and you had thousands of fans on the side of the road. Was that the event with the most spectators you have ever seen? How, how was that for you and, and women cycling? Definitely, it was nice to hear the feedback after the race, hear the feedback from your friends that normally have no idea about the cycling or people that actually support you and people that see you racing, see you attacking, that definitely like makes you want to repeat that the next day. It's nice to feel appreciative and you feel like all the hard work that you put in is somehow rewarded. It may, might sound in some ways vague that like we want, um, in Polish we say aprobata, like the, the good positive feedback, but in some ways that was definitely turning us on. Um, hearing people on the side of the road screaming and just having fun because all of these people were just having fun in some ways was uh, affectious. So that was also nice. And we had a good weather. We had a good food. We had amazing cook from Germany, actually, Silvio. So um, also it felt very professional. So maybe that was another factor that made it very special because uh, everything was just like very well and precisely done. So then you just know that you don't wanna mess up. You just wanna measure up to all the hard work also from people around us. So yeah, the energy was exchanging definitely between like uh, fans giving us the support and us wanting to give them a reason to support us. So I know we're just here at the end of February and you have a lot on your mind as far as the classic season goes, but have you already started planning or looking at maybe planning recon camps for the course this year, the Tour de France of X Swift? Mm -hmm. Cause, um, I have apartment in Andorra also, and actually from Andorra to, um, the last stages of Tour de France is not that far. So I definitely will try to go there in April and then May, June, July. Like I will try to see the course a couple more, couple times, not just once. Yeah. I mean, with the, with the finish on the, the Tourmalet on the seventh stage and then the individual time trial in, in Poe, 
Um, I have a feeling that there'll be a lot of women going and looking at these parkours because yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting, uh, for sure. But, um, yeah, you gotta, got some other races to do before then. So we won't take up too much of your time talking the details of that. Um, I'm afraid I, I have to go, unfortunately. Um, my last question actually would be before I go, um, how often do you actually have a chance to go home and see the family back in Poland? Uh, so I would say that before I would go there like every two, three months. Now it changed a little because also we have more races during the season. And I feel like anytime I have at least weekend off, I just try to chill, stay home. Uh, they start to make effort to come towards me. So all they, or they come to see me racing. Uh, but I would say that on the average, I go to Poland twice per year, twice or three, three times. Yeah. Let, let's talk about women's cycling in general for, for a bit here. Let's face it. I mean, women's cycling is on the major upswing changes in race program, more live coverage, better wages, even development teams are being created. I would love to hear uh, from you about the positives and negatives and perhaps negatives from some someone like yourself that is in it, like in the trenches and a very big part of it. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your overall view of the state of women's cycling. Um, so to be honest, actually, it feels amazing that with every passing year, something changes in the women's cycling. Like even when I think about 2018 to now, like so much has changed. Uh, there, there are way, way more professional teams, teams that they can, can fight for victories. Um, the, like speaking of prices, for example, the, the race prices are equal to what men's are getting. So, um, there's always something basically that changes and like moves on. Um, I like to see that actually women's cycling somehow takes its own path, how to develop. We do not necessarily follow what guys said, which like some people don't understand because I still get asked like why two difference women fem as in 21 days or why we don't race 200 K. So I really hope that women's cycling will remain what it is right now. And just like we create our sport and don't blindly follow what was created by guys because we're just different. Um, but yeah, definitely it's nice to see that there are people who are fighting for our development and who care to make us grow and to make us more visible. So I think that everything goes into the positive side. Of course, it could be happening faster. But on the other hand, when I really think how it was when I started, then it's a big difference. So I really hope that with every passing year, there will be more uh, possibilities for young riders. For sure, there is a one thing that we, uh, or women second could improve. is just like having more races for under 23 girls, because it's actually wild to think that a junior who turns 19 and all of a sudden becomes the first year of elite has to do all those races with us where level is really high. So basically you just like get slammed straight away. And that person might think that she needs to ride like five, six hours a day, which uh, when it comes to her development isn't the greatest way because she can burn out pretty soon. So it would be nice if the development grade was a little smoother. 
Yeah, and and they're they're starting to have more of the under twenty three kind of first step into the pros now for for women, which I find f- fantastic. But you're right, you know, so much in cycling is just because of the history. It's the way it's always been, right? Long races, kind of sometimes boring races. But with with women's cycling, especially in the Tour de France of Zwift this year, um, I think there's only one stage that's 177 kilometers. The rest of them are kind of in that 140 range, right? Do you think that those shorter stages not only benefit women's cycling, but could also benefit men's cycling? Yeah, definitely. To be honest, any stage or any race I would do that was more than 160 Ks, it would be so boring for the first two hours. Like seriously, we would not be riding. It would be so boring. I would feel like my mind and my body is turning off and it was so hard to like get back into the game because you're like, oh, we stopped like five times for a PP stop. Like let's just roll to the finish line. You know, you don't feel like you want to race anymore. When you have race between like 130 to 150, then basically the action is on from the start because first you have the smaller teams that are trying to get into the breakaway, but then nobody wants to let anyone go into the breakaway for the most part. So all the time something is happening and then like you have a final, you have a key moment. So um, it's like three to four hours of racing is very explosive and dynamic. And maybe you have like 10 to 15 minutes where people are chilling a little, but for the most part, just the fire is on all the time. And even we could see during Tour de France, Femavec Swift, the the longest stage, 177 Ks, I think. It was like the slowest, the most boring one, the nothing happened. Everyone just wanted to have it done. You know, it's just to check it. We had also one year, like during Giro, 180 Ks, I think. The same story, super boring, nothing happened. People just want to make it to the finish line, basically. We don't really race. So... How many times you even find yourself watching men's race and seeing that it's 110 to go and you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to come back in one hour or whatever, you know? It's not that people are not very interested because nothing is happening and it's kind of normal. But I do believe that even if guys had like, imagine guys racing for 140Ks, that would be wild from the start because then like, everyone can make that distance. So everyone would be more dynamic and they would attack more and they would make the race harder. So also would be more interesting to watch, I think. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of that as well. Um, I know Yenzi was the king of the half stages. So any stage that was like a double day, like uh, in Pay Basque, we always had it. It was a short stage in the morning and then a time trial in the afternoon. That short stage was like a video game. You were just like pinned the entire time. And I'm like, why don't we do this more often? So Kasia, you've been pro since 2014. Uh, you've been on the same team for, for quite a while. You've seen these amazing changes in women's cycling. If you had just carte blanche right now, a clean slate, is there anything else that we've missed that you think we could incorporate into women's cycling to make it even better? Um, like, um, again, as I mentioned before, just having maybe under 23, uh, women team, 
um, more races for them as well. Um, I think it's kind of hard to say anything right now because I feel like we are in a really good place right now when it comes to the development and what's ahead of us. I feel like it's not that we're that far off from like where we could have been. And I feel like in some ways, knowing how it was before, I kind of feel humble and grateful for what we have right now. Uh, it's definitely must feel definitely different for young girls entering women's pro tour right now and having the fixed minimum salaries to like me and other girls racing eight years ago that we raced for like 200 euros per month and everyone was like, yeah, I get money. You know, you just celebrate it. So um, I feel like the perspectives are a little different between uh, my generation and the generation that was born in 2000, for example. Um, but yeah, to be honest, nothing in particular really comes to my head right now. I think that definitely yeah, yeah. would be nice to have more races like Lombardia or uh, Milano Sanremo, but I do believe that they will come up to our calendar because there are some really cool classics uh, that we are still missing. So I, I was looking at like your history and doing a little research and I saw that quite often you're right around that 40 race per year number. Like that seems to be overall through your career, like right around 40. Um, so you're saying that you would want to race more than 40 days? Um, to be, maybe I also crave for some late races I've never done before. You know, you know, for sure yourself best, like when you are, uh, when you've been, you were racing for multiple years, anything that pops up new, you are more curious to do it because there's like a new course and new scene, everything is different. So I feel like that would excite me to just like be able to change my calendar a little. I guess when it comes to the number of days I race, I probably would keep it around the same. Um, but just like changing calendar a little because I feel like I have the same goal. I've been having the same goals for quite a lot of years already. So yeah, I would be just curious to mess around a little and like be able to skip certain races because sometimes I feel like I have to do certain races because I can I, I can have a good result there, but would be nice to like be able to change it also. Yeah, yeah. I, I think back to when I was racing and I basically did the same races, the same program for so long. And you're right, like when those new races pop up, like the Tour Down Under, you're like, man, I wish I would have had that. You know, the Tour of, Tour of California, you know, all these new new places to ride a bike. I absolutely uh, agree with you there. But now I, I have to ask this question. Um, we have to talk about your partner, Taylor Finney. I mean, he is one of my most favorite people on the planet. And for our listeners who want to have a good laugh, go to Taylor Instagram's uh, feed and, and watch his recent stories. Um, if you don't have the muscles in your abdomen sore the next day from belly laughing, there's something wrong with you for sure. But Kasia, you have a front row seat to the artist, the actor, the unique human being that encompasses Taylor Finney. What is it like living with such a talented and free-spirited genius such as Taylor? <laughs> His demands are very high. 
he's always hungry <laughs> to start with. <laughs> he likes to be taken care of. Uh, no, but seriously, uh, yeah, um, we're very in love. So I think that makes everything very beautiful. And the longer we stay together, the longer we share our lives together, the better it gets. So um, it's just, it feels very amazing to be able to find a person that you know that you can just be yourself with and you can expose all your shades and you are accepted. And at the top of that, you get supported, you get good laughs, you get... Um, just like anything you could possibly ask for. So uh, for me, it's very amazing to actually observe him sometimes from a side, like see to just to see how his brain works, how his um, artistic part works or how he's still like a cycling part works actually. So uh, I'm also very fortunate to be in a place where uh, I can listen to his advice because he lived through more than I and he retired already. So he has this perspective from a different world that he shares with me and even like the post-retirement feelings and like finding yourself. So I definitely feel like I gain extra knowledge about even like myself and life just from living with him. And I feel like he's preparing me for what life could hold for me. He's also a very grounding person. So whenever, especially because now I'm like in and out racing and uh, of course I like balance different emotions and feelings and he's always there to just kind of slow me down and to stabilize my emotions. And um, yeah, sometimes he takes a lot. So I'm very grateful for just the support mostly and the love because he's very loving person he's been trying to hide it for years that he will never ever date a female cyclist but he did it and <laughs> we're very happy about it well we know that taylor was an amazing biker um he's an amazing artist uh musician trail builder his impressions are amazing what is your hidden talent that we don't know about what is your when when you guys are goofing around what what how do you let off steam or what is your little secret? Um, I'm, I don't know. I think I'm baking quite a lot when I'm not traveling, of course. Um, so I just love being in the kitchen, I think. I just love cooking, baking, creating something with the food ingredients. Uh, I think that's my little secret. I don't know what else. Maybe the question could go to Taylor because sometimes I feel like it's hard for me to talk about myself, really. Um, well, I don't know if it's Taylor, Euro Taylor. Um, he's got so many new personas. So, yeah, Euro Taylor. Um, yeah, Euro Taylor. Yeah, like that. But Well, Kasia, thank you so much for your time today. We wish you all the best in 2023. and. Um, one last question that we can cut out if you don't feel like answering it. Is there by any chance a marriage in your future? That's a very good Taylor, one. I'll ask you. Taylor just popped in. How you doing, buddy? I'm sorry. I'll, I'll pose this to both of you. <laughs> I, I keep like, you know, waving my fingers yeah, in front of yeah, him. Yeah, I don't see a, a ring on that. Well, let, right? me, let me take this time Actually, here on tell... this podcast. <laughs> you wanna... Drop to one knee, my friend. <laughs> oh, no, he's getting on his knees. Oh, it's, it's breaking up. <laughs> it's happening. It's breaking up. 
static, static. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again, Kasia. It's been fantastic. And um, just all the best in life. And you guys seem to have it figured out pretty well. Thank you so much. Well, that's all the time we have for this week, folks. Huge thanks to Kasia for being our guest. Thanks for listening to us. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. <laughs>